This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. I am Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Nice to be with you again, Alan. And with you, Darren. On today's episode, we're going to lead off our discussion looking at Five Eyes through the lens of Huawei and 5G. We'll then keep the focus on China and consider reports of problems with Australian coal exports to the PRC. And after that, we're going to touch on the question of recognising alternative governments in the context of Venezuela and finish with a quick discussion of some concerning developments in the India-Pakistan relationship after a suicide bombing in Kashmir. Okay, let's get started. So first, Huawei and 5G and intelligence cooperation. Now, of course, while Huawei is already one of the world's largest smartphone manufacturers, their main area of business is telecommunications infrastructure, the 21st century version of a poles and wires company, if you will. And as was discussed and debated extensively last year here in Australia, with increasingly complex and dependent digital economies and networks, 5G technology is going to be revolutionary, not just for faster internet, but the ability for machines to talk to each other in real time and thereby enabling technologies like self-driving vehicles. Of course, this infrastructure needs to be built, which raises two very complex sets of issues. First, from the point of view of nation states who want to buy and build these networks, they need to be purchased and they want to purchase networks that are both high quality and low cost, like any good consumer, but also with the additional dimension of being secure. The more connected we are digitally, the more exposed we are to malicious online digital activity, which could mean disruptions of physical infrastructure or the stealing of sensitive information, amongst other things. The second set of questions relates to the supply side. This is, after all, cutting-edge technology, and it's going to be very difficult to master, And industry first movers, that is the firm or firms who manage to do it well before anyone else, will enjoy all sorts of advantages, locking in particular standards, market power, plus additional advantages in the development of technologies like artificial intelligence. This is why the US and Chinese governments in particular, locked as they are in some sort of great power competition, both want their own firms or at least firms from friendly countries rather than adversaries, to be the ones that succeed. Now, this is very important context for understanding current events. As listeners will remember, last year the Australian government made the decision, effectively, to prevent Chinese firms from participating in the building of 5G infrastructure here. The reasons given were cast in national security terms and related to concerns that the Chinese Communist Party could, if it wanted to, compel private technology companies to act on its behalf in the pursuit of political or some strategic interest. Essentially, this was seen as a lack of separation between government and company. New Zealand made a similar decision towards, uh, towards the end of last year, or a decision along similar lines, seen as a ban, and now other Western governments, Germany, the UK and Canada among them, 
are facing similar decisions. Reporting in recent weeks suggests that neither the UK nor Germany are interested in a complete ban on Huawei, with Britain's National Cybersecurity Centre apparently calculating that there are ways to limit the risks from allowing Huawei or other Chinese companies to participate in these networks. With all this background, this brings me to a quote from the US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on the 21st of February. And I quote, Countries must understand the risk of putting this Huawei technology into their IT systems. We can't forget these systems were designed by, with the express work alongside the Chinese PLA, their military in China. They are creating a real risk for these countries and their systems, the security of their people. If a country adopts this and puts it in some of their critical information systems, we won't be able to share information with them. We won't be able to work alongside them. In some cases, there's a risk we won't even be able to co-locate American resources, an American embassy or an American military outpost. Now, of course, the UK and the US, along with Australia, Canada and New Zealand, are part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing arrangement. And so there has been discussion about whether Five Eyes might be in some difficulty if the UK indeed allows Huawei to participate in its network. So with all that background, Alan, there's a lot to unpack here. Can I start by asking you to explain to us what Five Eyes is, you know, what it does, and what its importance is for the Australian national interest? Well, the, the Five Eyes countries are the United States, the UK, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, and the origins of the relationship lie back in the secret code-breaking work of the Allies against uh, German and Japanese uh, military during the Second World War. So I think of Bletchley Park and all, all of that. The arrangement became more uh, formalised during the Cold War. And the principal, although it's called Five Eyes, the principal partners were, of course, the US through the National Security Agency and the UK through the British Signals Intelligence Body, uh, GCHQ. Australia and the others had smaller parts to play, but uh, different areas of the world were useful for picking up the communications of our opponents. So this was a signals intelligence alliance in which most things were shared. Exchanges in other parts of the intelligence uh, business, like um, human reporting or, or spying, were much more carefully protected and narrowly traded. So that went on through the 20th century. But since the beginning of uh, the 21st century, a couple of big things have transformed the nature of the Five Eyes relationship. First of all, especially after 9-11, uh, we came to understand that it wasn't only other states whose communications were important to national security, but non-state actors like terrorists and criminal syndicates as well. So this brought the uh, domestic security agencies as well as defence and international um, uh, security into the Five Eyes fold. So the second transformation was the digital and communications revolution. So at the beginning, picking up other people's signals and breaking codes, uh, you know, meant crouching with a pair of earphones um, in front of a radio receiver. Uh, but now it became the business of com computers and the internet. So the technological form of the business and the scale expanded enormously. You asked about the importance to Australia. Well, of course, it's it's hugely important, not just because it provides us with access to information we wouldn't otherwise have, but because, and this is even more important, I think it establishes the foundations of trust in the broader relationship with those other 
Five Eyes countries, including the uh, ANZUS alliance. Uh, I have to say every time uh, you know, you start talking about these things or I read reports in newspapers, I find it a weird sense of unreality. I began working in this area in the days when the existence of the agreement was among the most highly sensitive uh, intelligence secrets. So when I pick up a newspaper and uh, and see uh, reporters uh, talking about the agreement and photographs of smiling Five Eyes ministers, I uh, have to pinch myself. The uh, Snowden leaks, I think, had a, had a good deal, deal to do with this more public acknowledgement of the arrangements. So, Alan, if we then turn to the, the present situation, um, and I, I'm very interested to hear your point about you know, it being a foundation of building trust you know, between these you know, aligned countries, because the US... You know, it, at least in the media, this is being interpreted as a, somewhat of a threat. You know, perhaps the US is going to refuse to cooperate with the UK uh, in intelligence, you know, maybe kick the UK out of, of Five Eyes. And that would be very destructive, not just for you know, the actual arrangement itself, but perhaps for trust and cooperation more broadly between the two countries. And I imagine if that was to happen, if that kind of trust was, was um, e- eroded, countries like China would be quite happy about that. Um, and so while, of course, we cannot know the extent to which you know, 5G participation and, and the involvement of Chinese companies in the infrastructure um, building might present risks to intelligence sharing and information security, it still strikes me as a, as a very bold step by the United States and maybe overreach. You know, what's your read of this situation, Alan, what type of concerns regarding Five Eyes would be legitimate, you know, where the US would be expressing legitimate concern? And another way of asking this is, why is it only Five Eyes? Why aren't other allied or partner countries like Japan or Germany not members of this small select group? Well, I think the answer to the latter part of your question is uh, is historical. There is, there is a just a long decades of trust and understanding among them. So I would be astonished if the US kicked the UK out of the Five Eyes Agreement. Pompeo's claim that the use of any Chinese equipment would bring into question US uh, cooperation seemed like a huge ambit claim uh, to me. You'd be basically talking about the end of the US-UK military alliance. And even Donald Trump in his wilder railings against the Europeans, I don't think wants that. It's a mistake to see this arrangement and and we shouldn't sort of frame intelligence sharing only around the Five Eyes uh, agreement. It goes on with various degrees of trust and generosity between allies and partners, and even in some cases, and you can think about um, intelligence about terrorism here, uh, with uh, with competitors. So this sort of trading is going on uh, all, all the time to various degrees. And what about our situation here in Australia? Uh, you have, on one hand, Pompeo making this you know, very strong statement, and then on the other, Donald Trump actually hinted uh, last week on it via tweet, of course, uh, at a potentially softer stance towards Huawei. And given the two sides are currently negotiating an end to the trade war, it's not inconceivable that Huawei's position might be improved following any deal. So how do you assess our situation in this context, Alan? Well, depending on how you read them, the, the mixed signals coming from Trump can suggest that all of this is simply a strategic jockeying by the United States as part of the trade negotiations with uh, uh, China. A uh, part of it also looks like uh, trade protectionism of an old-fashioned 
kind. Uh, you you began by talking about uh, the importance of uh, of this uh, area, and it's one where China is ahead in terms of technology and costs, but where the US wants, understandably enough, to maintain its uh, position. You and I have discussed on this podcast before the dangers of a new technological iron curtain coming down across the world, so this matters a lot. Um, I don't I don't have the technological knowledge necessary to know exactly what the dangers of participation by Chinese manufacturers in any part of the 5G network are or how they might be mitigated. Uh, Australia's decision makers have obviously come to their own conclusion, as you said, but there's uh, clearly a big debate going on within allied security circles about what's acceptable and what's not. The British in particular have made it clear that they think options are available in some areas that prov provide them with a sufficient sense of security. I noticed that the uh, former head of GCHQ, Robert Hannigan, who is a, a British Mandarin of high standing, uh, wrote in the Financial Times recently uh, that uh, assertions that any Chinese technology in any part of the 5G network represents an unacceptable risk and nonsense. So Pompeo's claims that any Chinese equipment would bring into question US cooperation seem a very large uh, uh, ambit claim to me. And by ambit claim, you mean that just, this is just sort of diplomatic pressure? Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, we're not going to have a US embassy in any country that uh, has Chinese telecommunications equipment is uh, just silly. So that's not going to happen. Of course, they, uh, of course they are, not least in China itself. <laughs> and I guess then we just chalk this up to sort of more reckless diplomacy by the Trump administration. I mean, if, as you, we get back to this idea of trust, you know, if, if Five Eyes is, is about building and, and maintaining trust in these very sensitive areas of cooperation, you know, why would you threaten it um, so publicly and sort of so, so bluntly? It's more of the same from the Trump administration, unfortunately. All right, let's move on to coal exports. And so I wanted to turn to this Reuters report from the 21st of February, which said that customs at the port of Dalian in China's north had banned imports of Australian coking coal as opposed to thermal coal and would cap all coal exports this year. The article said that neither Russian nor Indonesian coal was affected and noted though, that Australian coal had been facing increasing delays elsewhere across China for some time. Initially, Trade Minister Simon Birmingham disputed that this was a discriminatory ban, casting it instead as a processing delay, uh, while a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, when asked about the issue, mentioned safety and quality in the context of protecting the environment. Now, over the weekend, this was last week, over the weekend, reporting suggested that, that Aussie diplomats in Beijing were scrambling to work out what was going on. But as of today, our recording on the 26th of February, no clear answers have been forthcoming. Asked, asked about it earlier this week, the Trade Minister conceded that maybe protectionism, protecting local Chinese industry, could have been a factor. Now, for some context, China consumes about one quarter of Australia's coal exports, though the Dalian port itself receives only about 2% of our overall exports in, of coal. Having said that, though, just last month, coal overtook iron ore as Australia's most valuable export. So this is always going to be a sensitive issue in Australia. And if this is a political intervention, it would probably violate Australia's free trade agreement with China. 
But of course, if it is political, there are no shortage of reasons why China might wish to retaliate, such as the aforementioned Huawei ban, foreign interference laws, or maybe even the cancellation of billionaire political donor Huang Xiang Mo's permanent residency in Australia. Across the ditch, our New Zealand friends have also been enduring rocky relations with China too, it seems. So, Alan, while it's early days on this story, do you have any initial comments? Well, look, my only real insight into this, uh, Darren, is that as someone who knows the problems of getting effective alignment and messaging within the relatively small, quite efficient Australian system, I'm always suspicious of interpretations that portray things that happen in the huge, quite inefficient Chinese system as the sending of precise signals, sometimes on totally unrelated issues, like <clears throat> payback for a rejection of an individual citizenship application or banning of Huawei. I, I, don't, I just don't think the Chinese system is built for nuance and subtlety on such matters. So I agree with Simon Birmingham that we shouldn't get too conspiratorial about it. Uh, more likely, I think, is uh, as um, both Birmingham and uh, the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe suggested at Senate Estimates last week, uh, it had something to do with the China trying to manage domestic coal demand as its uh, economy slows. I think the the only thing that you can say we can say with certainty is that it's yet another reminder of what's coming for Australia. The difficulty we're going to have with reading Chinese moves because of the systemic uh, differences between us and uh, avoiding getting spooked by every passing action, uh, understanding the Chinese system as well as we can is the only way through it. It still strikes me as remarkable, though, that, yes, the government, we would all be relieved if this wasn't some kind of political retaliation, but that you know, the trade minister and other commentators have said, well, it's not coercion, it's just likely to be protectionism. Um, you know, we do have this free trade agreement with China and they have been holding themselves up as defenders of the global trading order in the face of Trump's attacks. And we're somehow relieved when these rules may be being violated for more prosaic reasons of protectionism than for sort of, um, you know, political, uh, political coercion. Isn't that still a problem? Uh, it's certainly still a problem and we should uh, hold the Chinese or anyone else to account when they uh, are in breach of agreements that we've uh, mutually reached with them, if that if that is the case. We just don't mm. know uh, here. Mm. I mean, different parts of the... The Chinese system is not monolithic and uh, different uh, parts of it do different things at different times. This can sometimes be useful to the central government and sometimes it can be unhelpful to the to the central government, but my point really is that we do need to avoid hyperventilating at mm. any uh, any sort of remote uh, uh, claim that things are being uh, done because it puts us in a weaker position. It's interesting. It makes me muse about you know, an aspect of teaching international relations, you know, where there are different theories, of course, that seek to explain the world, and one of the major differences between classical realism. Um, and forms of, of liberal theory is that the realism is seen as, as taking the state as a unitary actor. You know, it, mm. It's this coherent, cohesive, monolithic uh, thing that does things with purpose and intention. Uh, and, of course, liberal theories point to domestic politics and bureaucracy and, and all of the messiness that you've been mentioning. And 
you know, I, I certainly, and I, I don't think anyone, you know, who's operating in the real world views China as being a, a unitary actor. But when, you know, something like this happens and the Australian government and the Australian community is, is looking to China for some explanation, at the end of the day, you still have a press conference with a foreign ministry spokesperson who has asked what is happening in Dalian with Australian coal exports. And for that very moment, we're listening to the response of, we're going to treat the response as that of a unitary actor. And so this poor foreign ministry spokesman is 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 thinking, God, I've got no idea what's going on in Dalian. It could have been some local official who's decided to, to take matters into their own hands. Or they may be thinking, this is part of our grand plan to, to squeeze Australia. Uh, and that uncertainty, as you say, we shouldn't be spooked by it, but we're going to be because we, you know, this, this is dollars and cents. The, the, you know, this is pretty soon you're talking about real money. And it's sort of a, it, it, it's a very challenging situation to keep your head in, even as you know that the system is chaotic. When you have a, at the end of the day, there is one person who was giving a public statement um, speaking for China. Um, and that's, it's an, an interesting, I hadn't quite thought about it like that before. Um, but that sometimes in our perception, we are dealing with a unitary actor, even if we know, you know, if we think about it for a minute, that it's, it's, that's actually not the case. Yeah, but on, on areas that we know better, like the United States, for example, we've seen the poor benighted State Department uh, uh, spokespeople or, or even, I dare say, Australian uh, DVAT spokespeople uh, from, from time to time not being in full control of uh, what's going on uh, within their own government. Yes, I guess, and I guess that you're more comfortable when you can when you can observe that messiness because the yeah. Chinese system is so opaque. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that's yeah, how exactly. they do things. Exactly. We're, we're we're a bit more we we're more prone to hyperventilation, which of course, as you say, is not helpful. Anyway, interesting, interesting uh, angle. Okay, well, let's move on. And I wanted to make a quick stop at you know on on the topic of Venezuela, um, which of course is going through a horrible you know state collapse. I don't know if there's any other way of describing it at the moment with massive shortages of food and medicine, uh, ongoing protests and increasing violence by government forces against the population, against the opposition. It's a full-blown humanitarian crisis, and while the government of President Nicolas Maduro is refusing the delivery of aid, the world is looking and, and wondering what's going to happen next. Now, here in Australia, of course, we don't have core interests, um, certainly not in, in, in Venezuela, but there is one aspect of this crisis that I wanted to discuss. In January of this year, uh, Juan Guaido, uh, who is the leader of the opposition-controlled legislature, essentially swore himself in as interim president, arguing that because of fraudulent aspects of elections held last year, that meant that the result was not a good one, um, <clears throat> not a clean one, that that meant constitutionally he um, should be the one who's in charge. He was the one who's designated to take over in these situations. And what's interesting to me is, is what happened next because the Trump administration, uh, most countries in South America other than a few leftist governments, as well as Canada and much of the EU, supported Guaido and now recognise him as the rightful interim president. On the other side of the ledger, you have China and Russia and Turkey as well, who have been the major supporters of Maduro and recognise his presidency. Now, the Australian government has joined with the West in recognising the opposition leader, Guaido. So, Alan, I don't have a specific Venezuela question, but I wanted to take this opportunity to ask you um, for your insight on the process and the decision-making calculus of our government when the leadership of another country is in some kind of dispute. You know, 
especially in a case like this one where you have a leader who, while very unpopular, had not really had his authority as president or as leader challenged or questioned you know, in recent times. You know, dodgy elections happen all the time. We criticise them, but we don't refuse to recognise the winners as a result very often. So how typically, how is a decision like this made? Well, you're right that Venezuela is not an area that engages uh, direct Australian interests. We've got no resident ambassador in Caracas, although we uh, accredit uh, an ambassador from uh, from Colombia. And our trade is almost non-existent. I looked at the DFAT uh, figures and it's down as 0% of Australian exports and 0% of Australian imports. Rounding error. <laughs> the, um, the terrible economic, political and increasingly humanitarian situation there, of course, is one in which we uh, can and we should have views. We should add our voice to the general international pressure. We can offer some uh, humanitarian assistance, but we're never going to be a major player. So in circumstances like this, we we consult with what are known in DFAT jargon as like-minded countries and uh, and try to support that them. In this case, uh, that means the Lima Group of Latin American uh, countries, which was formed by Canada specifically to try and address this situation, as well as the EU and the United States. So in specifically citing the Lima Group position, Maurice Payne announced that Australia recognises and supports the opposition leader Juan Guaido in assuming the position of interim president until elections are held. Um, I note, however, that as of our recording anyway, uh, Maduro is still listed as the head of state and government on the DFAT website. Um, uh, back in 1988, uh, after a period in which it got into a tangle over recognition of new regimes after coups and changes of government in Fiji, Cambodia and Afghanistan, uh, it was all uh, very uh, frustrating at the time, as I remember, the Australian government announced that it would no longer formally recognise or withhold recognition of foreign governments. Instead, it would recognise states and then conduct relations with new regimes, and I'm quoting it, to the, uh, to the extent and in the manner which may be required by the circumstances of each case. So the idea was to introduce flexibility to Australian diplomacy. You wouldn't have to recognise a new government. You recognise a new state, and then you just dealt with the government as circumstances uh, demanded, and the uh, opposition broadly supported the uh, the move. So as, as far as I know, that position hasn't changed. So I think what we're seeing here is it is is an example of a decision where we continue to recognise the state of Venezuela, but not to deal with the regime currently in place because of its um, odious uh, nature. Okay, finally then, uh, turning to India-Pakistan, on the 14th of February, a suicide car bombing killed more than 40 security personnel in the Indian-administered but Muslim-majority province of Jammu and Kashmir. So this is Indian-controlled Kashmir territory. The bomber was a local, as I understand it, but the attack was claimed by the Pakistan-based military group and US-designated terrorist organisation Jaish-e-Mohammed. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, facing a general election in a few months, accused the Pakistan government of being complicit in the attack and vowed revenge, recalling India's High Commissioner and imposing some trade sanctions. The Pakistan government, after condemning the attack and denying any role in it, criticised New Delhi for making accusations without proof. 
Now, of course, with these two countries having fought multiple wars since independence and both being in possession of nuclear weapons, this is a tense situation. And amid these tensions, an Indian government minister threatened to cut off Pakistan's water supply, um, though a government, the government later clarified this referred to decisions already taken and Pakistan's water minister concurred that this was not a concern to them. And we have breaking news just this morning. The Indian military conducted some strikes over the line of control into Pakistan-controlled Kashmir territory, targeting camps of militants. The initial reaction from Pakistan was remarkably calm, essentially stating that nothing much had been hit and they weren't too concerned by it. So, Alan, you know, while I guess we're hoping that this is just the latest in, in ongoing simmering tensions, but that doesn't escalate into anything much larger... I wanted to, again, take this opportunity to ask you, based on your experience, um, how the Australian government approaches an incident like this. You know, with upcoming elections, Modi will be under a lot of pressure to be strong, and there is certainly an argument that Pakistan has not done enough to clamp down on extremist groups. Australia doesn't want to pick sides, but it also doesn't want open war to break out. What kind of diplomatic strategy would we typically adopt in a situation like this? And before you answer, it seems that Australia's response was a tweet by Scott Morrison late last week that said, Australia condemns the heinous terrorist attack on an Indian police convoy in Jammu and Kashmir. We convey our deepest condolences to the families of the victims and all those injured. Our thoughts are with my friend Prime Minister Modi and the Indian people. Well, I see uh, Penny Wong put out a statement along very similar lines. So there's strong bipartisanship here, but the bipartisanship is obviously of a declaratory nature. There's nothing uh, that we will be able to do except express our support, take what international actions we can against terrorist uh, groups like the one responsible. There's there's obviously a lot to to worry Australian policy uh, makers. It was a terrible attack by a a group which has clear roots in and support from Pakistan. And Modi, as you say, faces an election soon. And uh, the new Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan is is also being tested. Both of them have to deal with very nationalist uh, forces behind them. And as you also said, these are two nuclear armed states. So the dangers of escalation or miscalculation are very real. So we can, I think, Um, We'll have to wait and see how this plays out. Uh, For Australia, I think it's a reminder of a couple of things. And and one is that uh, military flashpoints in the Indo-Pacific are not just about East Asia or China. Uh, China's not irrelevant uh, here. Its strong support for Pakistan is an absolutely critical element in Islamabad's uh, ability to, uh, you know, maintain its position. But the dynamic at work has deeper and more local roots. And secondly, despite the uh, Act East policies of the Indian government, real national security interests are always going to draw a huge part of India's focus towards its western border. Maurice Payne was in New Delhi in January and spoke of Australia's desire to engage India more deeply in the Pacific. That's a a good ambition and to be encouraged. But these events are a reminder of the differences in India's strategic priorities and Australia's. Okay, well, let's wrap up the podcast then with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? I've I've been reading uh, Ben McIntyre's book, The Spy and the Traitor, 
uh, I don't know if you've uh, come across it, Darren, but it's a, the remarkable and thrillingly written story of Oleg Gordievsky, who was the senior KGB officer, the head of the uh, London residency, the most important Russian spy ever recruited by the Brits, and the story of the American CIA officer and traitor Aldrich Ames, uh, whose uh, treachery exposed him. It's a terrific read, a real-life uh, spy thriller, but it also makes important points uh, about the usefulness of intelligence information to policymakers. What Gordievsky was able to reveal about how senior officials in Moscow thought about the world was really influential in shaping the way both Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan uh, responded to the emergence of um, of Mikhail Gorbachev. The author's a British journalist, so he wrote page-turningly, uh, and he also wrote the equally good story of how Kim Philby manipulated the British establishment in A Spy Among Friends a couple of years ago. So if, like me, you sometimes pine for the simpler days of the Cold War, or more probably, like you, Darren, you're too young to remember them, uh, these are two highly recommended books. What about you? Unfortunately, I've been dealing with a series of ailments. Uh, and every time I hear your contribution to this segment, Alan, I, I feel you know, terrible as a supposed academic that I'm not reading more broadly. But uh, at the moment, um, I, well, at least lately, I've been stuck in bed. And so I was watching some television uh, and I caught up on... Uh, season two of Stranger Things, which is on Netflix. Uh, when season one came out a few years ago, it was really a delightful discovery, I think, for much of, of, of the TV-watching world, um, bringing back a lot of nostalgia, indeed, for a period of the Cod War, the, the mid-1980s, with echoes of E.T. and Steven Spielberg uh, uh, and pop culture. Uh, and this uh, season two was really more of the same. Um, they They stuck to their winning formula, expanded the universe a little bit, but but really, in my view, didn't make many uh, poor steps. You know, they were, remained interesting and, and, and a little bit uh, novel while keeping some of the best parts of the show. And I just, it's, it, you know, as we approach, uh, and again, this is a long way away from the topic of this podcast, but as we approach the final season of Game of Thrones, um, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of six weeks' time, it will get started. It, you know, it, it does strike me as a little bit sad that in this era of on-demand television that we don't have any more sort of cultural touchstones where everyone is watching the same thing and discussing the same thing. Everyone is watching whatever niche program interests them and that Game of Thrones might be the very last one where, you know, most people, not everyone, most people will be watching it as soon as it, it possibly comes out. And I think that, you know, five, ten years ago, this show, Stranger Things, would have been similar, that it, we, we would have waited with bated breath each week to, to watch on Sunday nights the, the show and then all been talking about it you know, around the water cooler or in the schoolyard the following morning. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a very enjoyable. But again, there's you watch it with a sense of nostalgia as well, not just for the things you know, from the show and the, and the cultural um, echoes, but for an era where television was something that was much more of a shared experience than I think it is it is today. I agree with you. It's it's a great series, but I disagree with you that uh, Game of Thrones has no relevance to this podcast. Winter is coming, Darren. Okay, yes, indeed. Donald Trump apparently had some posters made up of something along those lines. Tariffs are coming, so yeah, they agree with you in the White House too. 
Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank AII intern Charlie Henshaw for his help, both with research and audio editing, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. It's going to be a big few weeks in the news. We have the North Korea summit coming up and maybe a resolution to the trade war. So there'll be a lot to talk about in a few weeks' time. Talk to you then. <laughs>